0: Father, sad words, difficult events, clearly a lot of sin. In this passage, we pray that you might speak to us. We pray that you might show us what hope there is in Jesus, as we read these words. Amen. 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 Uh, just one brief clarification as well before we dig in, especially if you weren't here last week. Um, Gideon is Deborah; they're, they're the same person. You might have clocked it in chapter 8, verse 35. Uh, Those of you who were here last week will remember back in chapter 6, I forget the verse. Back in chapter 6, verse 32, Gideon has given us a new name, Gerald so he's talking about the same person, not two different ones. Uh, Have you ever been hurt in the church? Have you ever been hurt in the church? If this isn't your, your first Sunday, if you've been here for at least a month, let's say, the answer's going to be, of course, yes, of course you have. Just, um, just the family nature of living alongside each other as sinful people, that we have the weekly bumps and scrapes of, of harsh words, of selfishness, of jealousy. We've all been hurt in the church. But just a slightly stronger question, have you ever been hurt by the church? or even stronger, have you ever been burnt by the church? Hurt or bruised by another Christian? Or even by a Christian leader? Or a group of Christian leaders? Or perhaps you don't feel that you've been hurt, burnt by the church directly, but you've seen others be hurt by churches or ministries they were involved in? Or you've read awful stories in the Christian press of things that Christian leaders have said and done. And if you have been at the receiving end of evil within the church, how did you find that experience? It hurts, doesn't it? Attacks from outside the church, evil out there, it hurts, it hurts deeply. But there's a slight sense in which we sort of expect it. There's a few too many warnings in the Bible for us to be totally surprised when we see evil in the world around us. But I think attacks, evil within the church, it hurts even more. Sin at the very heart of the church and its leadership. I think there are a few things that are more discouraging and painful. But I think this passage has something to say to us on that this morning. Last week, as for Recap, we were in Gideon part one, chapters six and seven, and the up trajectory for Gideon, the weak wheat thresher who uh, came up and became Israel's saviour,
1: although there was quite a lot of uh, sin and doubt thrown into the mix of his
0: weakness, as we saw. Um, this week, we're in the slightly lesser known Gideon part two. Chapters eight and nine. Uh, and it's quite definitely the, the down trajectory. Uh, things seem to go from bad to worse in these verses. And although it may not immediately be apparent, uh, it seems that the seeds of Abimelech, Gideon's son's weakness, we meet in nine verse one, were sown in the life of Gideon. Uh, we'll trace over this, this grim story, uh, and then we'll step back and we'll see what gospel hope there is. In this depressing set of words. So, first, the problem. As Gideon forgot God, so Israel forgot God. The problem is Gideon forgot God, so Israel forgot God. And that takes us from 7 verse 23 right through to 9 verse 6. In 7 verses 21 and 22, as Phil just taught us, we read of the most extraordinary victory. Having had their army reduced from 32,000 down to 300, the Israelites blew their trumpets, smashed their jars, grasped their torches and shouted. And God granted them the most resounding victory against the Midianites, without them having to lift a sword. But that isn't quite the end of the battle, for verse 23, the Israelites give chase, calling the men of Ephraim to assist. Uh, they capture and behead two of the Midianite leaders, Orem and Z in verse 25. Chapter 8 verse 1, the Ephraimites kick a kick up a fuss. Why did you only call us to do your dirty work when the battle was nearly over? Where's the glory for us? Gideon diffuses the situation in verses 2 and 3. And then he and his three hundred men continue in pursuit of two kings of Midian now, Zeba and Zarmon in verse 5. Then Gideon passes through Israelite, the town of Succoth and asks for bread for his worn out troops. The men of Succoth refuse. Why should they? Verse 6. Just for that, Gideon responds, verse 7 When the Lord has given Zebron's armor into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and dry out. A similar scene occurs at Penium, but with an even worse threat in verse 9. Eventually verses 10 and 11 Gideon catches up with the remnant of the Midianite army and captures the two kings in verse 12. Gideon returns to Succoth and Penuel in verses 13 to 17 he carries out his threats. And then verses 18 and 19 back to Zebra and Zalmanah there's a bit of a sort of to and fro taunting between them and Gideon. And then Gideon commands Jephthah, his eldest son, to kill the kings in verse 20. Jephthah's only a boy and was afraid and can't do it. So Gideon does the job himself in verse 21 and claims them as his treasure. Now, there's certainly some more ambiguity here. Gideon may have been right to pursue the Midianite rulers post-battle to avoid a return attack. And then he diffuses the Ephraimites' um, stung pride very diplomatically and successfully. And surely the people of Sokoth and Penuel should have come to his support and given them troops and bread. But despite those questions, there seems to be quite a few signs of sin growing in Gideon in these verses. He doesn't seem to be acting on God's commands, so much as his own personal desire for reputation, and for revenge. And the problem doesn't just lie with Gideon. The Israel that he's leading seems to have fractured. Remember the united forces back in chapter 6, verse 35, or, or even back in chapter 7, verse 23, all rallying together behind Gideon and behind God. And now it's each tribe and town for himself. They'd only get involved if it's on their turf, And they want the glory. But things go worse. Because I think the closing section of chapter 8 gives us the crux of this episode. Um, And actions speak louder than words. Could be a good title, I think. Um, Let's read again from verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They're so pleased and so thankful of Gideon's victory and so impressed by him that they want him as more than a judge, a sort of military deliverer. They want him as a ruler. And although they studiously avoid the word king, it's pretty clear that they want to establish the dynasty of Gideon. In verse 23 Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Yes. Amen, Gideon. I will rule because God rules. Except, verse 24, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And uh, look how much he gets from them, verses 25 and 26. Non-king Gideon seems to be demanding a rather kingly symbolic gesture of his people's submission to you. Uh, Then, verse 27, Gideon made gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. Non-King Gideon now innovates the nation's religious practices, creating a new second priestly ephod. They already had the ephod um, from the time of Moses, they lived with the tabernacle and the ark, probably at Shiloh or Bethel at this point in Israel's history. Um, But it seems that Gideon wants to create a new one. Maybe he wants more direct and personal divine guidance in his town. And all Israel follows. And then thirdly, that non-king Gideon seems to establish a family, a house, and a name for himself. He, uh, in effect, makes Offerah the new capital city, in verse 27. He establishes a harem for himself, in verse 30. And he names one of his sons Abimelech, which means, my father, is king. Could be God. Maybe not. It would seem that Gideon is king in practice, if not in theory. But things get worse. Verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the baths. They set up Baalberith as their god and did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them. After forty years of peace, Gideon dies, and as soon as he dies, Israel forgets. They forget Gideon, and they forget God. Not forget, like struggling to remember, forgot to pick up milk on the way home, but forget, as internally turn about. What's the man through whom God had delivered them is no longer standing in front of them. They struggle to remember that God has rescued them at all. Gone, and very much forgotten. In fact, God only gets five mentions between 7 verse 23 and the end of chapter 8. And there are several of them, for example in verse 3, verse 7, verse 19, seem simply to be part of Gideon's power plays against people. And we're not told of anything that God said in this passage. And God isn't replaced with nothing. Uh, That's all sort of agnostic, atheistic absence of a non-religious nation now. No. We all worship something, whether it's a religion <coughs> or not. And the Israelites turned from God to Baal, Baal Barth, in verse 33. God seems to be God. And he is very much forgotten. And then 9, verse 1 goes worse again. We meet Abimelech. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and to all his mother's kind, Ask all the citizens of Shechem which is better than you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons, Boulevi, or just one man. Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. I don't know whether you spotted, as we read, but uh, verses 29 to 32 were littered with references to the famine, the dynasty of Gideon. But it seems that the energy Gideon puts into his family has come back to bite him now. For the son he had by his Canaanite concubine, in verse 31, Shechem was a town in Canaan, while unlike his humble-ish father, he definitely wants to rule. My father like son, perhaps. Now Abimelech is one of the 70 brothers. He'd obviously busy post-war. So Abimelech's going to have his work cut out for him to make his dream become a reality. Uh, so he goes to his mum's family in Shechem, verse T, and he says, surely clarity, simplicity would be better. We need one clear, strong leader here. We need me. After all am your flesh and blood. Blood speaks stronger than justice for Abimelech. His mother's family do what they're told. And the deed is done by the end of verse 6. But did you notice gruesome little verse 5 in there? Abimelech went to his father's home in offer, and on one stone murdered his seventy brothers, the sons of Jerathbar. We've gone from Israel fighting her enemies, the Midianites, to Israel fighting her own towns and tribes, Succoth, Eniel, to the king of Israel, murdering his own family. It's calculated, it's ruthless, it's evil. The basically stronger than justice, but it doesn't speak the strongest desire for a And now, I think, we've reached the bottom. Gideon's gone, God is forgotten, and Abimelech, in direct disobedience to God's commands in Deuteronomy that he alone is Israel's king,
1: Abimelech manipulated and murdered his
0: way to the throne, and Israel, they're in a very sorry state, but God isn't finished with them. Have we seen the problem? As Gideon forgot God, so Israel forgot God. Now we see the turning, a rare interjection from a just God, in chapter nine verses seven to twenty-four. For one brother, in chapter nine verse five, survives, Jotham, and he speaks a fable in verses seven to twenty, a fable not just against Abimelech. But according to verse 16, against those who facilitated and supported him, these leaders of Shechem, who made him king. I think this favour is meant to be funny. We've got these trees hunting for a king. All the noble trees say no. They've got better and more useful things to do than to be crowned king. So they end up asking the totally unsuitable thorn bush to be their king. The thornbush can't quite believe it's luck, (laughs) saying yes, but warning, it may be more of a hindrance to them than a help. And then verse 16, have you acted honourably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Jotham asks. Verse 20, if you have not let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the citizens of Shechem and Bethlehem. And let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Bethlehem, and consume Abimelech. This is not going to end well. Jotham warns. It will end in mutual destruction. The response from those listening is silence. And verses 21 and 22. Jotham flees and Abimelech settles down to. And then in the final few verses that Jeremy read for us. Um, God fairly unusually, well, the narrator fairly usually interjects to tell us what God is doing. Verse 23. God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem had he helped him murder his brothers. God intervened in the events and set discord between these new political allies to bring justice for Gideon's murdered sons. Abimelech is not going to get away with this evil and nor will the people of Shechem. God will bring justice and he would use these two evil forces to destroy each other. And in the rest of the chapter, we see that play out. Now we see the resolution, judgment on Abimele, Carthagot, the resolution, judgment on Abimelech. from chapter 9 verse 25 through to the end of the chapter we'll um, have to read it later, but, but briefly, the Shechemites set up a hilltop attack against Abimelech, in verse 25. Uh, then Gal and his family move to Shechem, verse 26, win over the Shechemite people and hold an anti-Abimelech festival, in verses 27 to 29. Zebal, governor of Shechem, still loyal to Abimelech, uh, gets wind of what's going on and proposes a dawn attack to Abimelech, in verses 30 to 33. Abimelech does what he's told, verse 34. There's a slightly odd battlefield interaction between Gaal and Zebul in verses 35 to 38, and then Abimelech and his men trance Gaal and Karin in verses 39 to 41. But defeating Gaal isn't enough. Abimelech then attacks the whole city of Shechem and destroys it in verses 42 to 45. The surviving Shechemites escape to the tower in Elbereth's temple, but Abimelech sets fire and a thousand people die in 46 to 49. And then finally, Abimelech sets his sights on Thebes in verse 50, besieging the tower with the same fiery plan in mind. But verse 53 a woman dropped another millstone on Abimelech's head and cracked his skull. And he begged his armor bearer to run him through. And that was the end of Abimelech. Shekin's destroyed, Abimelech's dead. And, there we, and um, verse 55, when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went out. And then we get a summary again from the narrator at the end, verses 56 and 57. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. Time has told. Judgment has come upon Abimelech. But um, does this mean that God has done evil? Has God punished the vengeful son, the vengeful Gideon, by getting revenge on him? Is God no better than his enemies? Certainly how some people in our society today would see him. No, I don't think so. Two, two brief points on that, so there'll no doubt be plenty more questions coming out of um, it. First, God is not the doer of evil. He's sovereign over all things, and that includes the evil actions of people. And he even orchestrates circumstances in which he knows evil will occur. As we see in chapter 9, verse 23, as he stirs ill-will between Abimelech and the Shechemite God is not the doer of evil. That was all the biblical and the Shakamats. It was they who did the killing and the treachery. It was their evil desires that made it happen. God is not the doer of evil. And second, God brought justice, not vengeance. God brought justice, not vengeance. Because the form with vengeance, at least in human terms, is that it's never satisfied. The introduction of um, an eye for an eye in the time of Moses, that was actually a good thing, intended to introduce mercy, because before then it had been, you take my eye, I'm not going to get it. I'll kill you for that. And Bimbalah took the life of his 70 brothers, and so God allowed for his life to be taken. No more, no less. Justice. And the leaders of Shachem appointed Abimelech to see their own ends. They somehow thought he would be the king they needed. And God simply made clear how wrong well their decision was. God brings justice, <laughs> not vengeance. Or at least not simple or human vengeance. So God is not the author of evil. Rather, in this passage we see that he is Israel's true king who delivers his sinful people from the evil caused by their fallen human kings who forget him and hurt his people. That's the point I think, to see that the Lord is Israel's true king and that he delivers his sinful people from the evil caused by their fallen human kings who forget him and hurt his people. God is not only able to deal with sin outside of people, he deals with the sin within. And we see it again and again in Israel's history. We see him demonstrate that he is no less able to deliver people from the evil within than from the evil without. Think of him delivering Israel from Eli's wicked sons, or from sinful Saul, or from Ahab, to name a few. The Lord. Is Israel's true king, and he delivers his sinful people from the evil caused by their fallen human kings who forget him and hurt his people. What a relief that is! And isn't that a relief for us too today? We're in a very different situation from Old Testament Israel and Judges. They had sinful, fallen, and weak judges, and then later on, sinful, fallen, and weak kings. We have one king. We have our Lord, King Jesus, who has taken the throne and who sits on it now reigning and who will reign on it for all eternity. We will never have an Abimelech equivalent. Jesus won't get old and die like Gideon did, leaving us to appoint someone new in his place. So I think our first application point is that we can be relieved. We are never going to have an Abimelech. As we have King Jesus. He is the King. He's here to serve. And He is the good, right, true King that we need. He will never treat His people, the church, like Abimelech <laughs> treated His people, Israel, ruthlessly elbowing His way to the top and vindictively punishing anyone who speaks out against Him. And we know Jesus will never treat us like that because we know what he's is like. The scriptures tell us, given the choice to be served or to serve, what did he do every time he served? At every turn in his earthly ministry, he showed kindness, graciousness, compassion towards the weak, sinful, vulnerable people who wanted to follow him. Think of his willingness to touch the leper, his tender recognition of the leading woman, his tears at the grave of Lazarus. His patience with the Wayward 12. And don't fall into the trap of thinking that he's changed, that he's somehow different. Now he's resurrected, now he's ascended, now he sits on his throne. Think of Peter's example. Jesus was just as compassionate with headstrong Peter after he'd been raised, as he was with him before he had died. So we mustn't think of some sort of stern, austere, cold King Jesus, sitting solemnly and approachably, unapproachably, like Queen Elizabeth on the side of the coin. No, we must think of him on his knees, as much as he is on his throne, pouring out prayer to his Father for us, Romans 8 verse 34. We know what King Jesus is like, and he is nothing like a vengeful king. Or bloodthirsty of any back. He is good, kind, gracious, and compassionate. And so we can be relieved. The second reason we can be relieved, and though he is good, kind, gracious, and compassionate as a king, that does not mean that he is weak. Jesus can deal with evil within the church, and he will deal with evil within the church. He is just as able and just as blue to bring justice in the church as he is outside it. And he will not ultimately let those who lead his church astray and hurt them escape unpunished. He'll either bring them back to him in repentance and Jesus will bear their sin for them on the cross or he'll bring justice to them, possibly in the short term, certainly on the final day. If you've been hurt by churches, by Christian leaders, willingly, willfully, sinning against you and the flock under their care, God knows He's sin, and He will bring justice. We pray it will be through their repentance. He will bring justice. Wolves in sheep's clothing will not be allowed to hurt His people forever. They will not find their way into heaven. King Jesus is not a weak king. He can and he will deal with evil within the church and he will bring justice when people try to act his sheep so he can be relieved. But a second application. I think we must also be warned. For Gideon and Abimelech weren't the only people to blame in this passage. Gideon built the ephod, but all Israel worshipped Bimelech murderously elbowed his way to the kingship, but the people of Shechem facilitated it. Israel had a part to play in the sin here. And remember, back in 8 verse 23, the heart of the problem I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, said Gideon. The Lord will rule over you. Israel's problem was that they wanted people as their leaders, not God. They wanted to replace God as their leader with human leaders. They wanted King Gideon, King Abimelech, rather than King Yahweh. And I wonder whether we can do that too. Whether we can find ourselves wanting human leaders as well as more than, or even instead of God. We let, we want our human leaders to lead us in a way that it is for God and God alone to lead us whether that's leaders in our churches, in our national, international church networks, our parachurch organisations. We let, we want humans to lead us in a way that it is actually only for God to lead us. We invest too much in them. We give them too much power and authority. We place them on a pedestal. We worship them. We trust them with a trust that's beyond their favouring. Beyond the wall, they've been called to biblically. Beyond what's good for their hearts and souls, or good for ours. And we turn them into God's substitutes. And then when they fail, and when they fall, when their sin is clear to see, we can't cope. We don't know what to do with them or with ourselves. How could they let us down? How could they prove so weak, so human? And we're scared and we're unsettled. And it turns out that rather a lot of our hope is in men and women, rather than in God. And those of us who lead, we facilitate that. We buy into secular views of what leadership should be. We long to be liked, loved, followed, obeyed. We think we've got more authority, more right to rule than Scripture actually gives us. We hold our opinions as if they have the weight of the Lord. And we mix up what's God's word, with what's just our thoughts, opinions, and wisdom. And like Gideon, we say the right thing, but our actions and our hearts are all over the place. We make so little of the dangers and temptations that we see here in countless other Bible passages that leaders are prone to. We think it will never happen to me. Maybe I should start keeping Judges 8, verse 23 on a post-it note next to my laptop. <laughs> no, we all should. So we must be warned, but we can be relieved. For Jesus is the church's true leader, not any man or anyone. Jesus is the church's true leader, and He can and He will bring justice and deliver His people, not just from enemies outside the church, but even from enemies Let's pause now for a few minutes, and then I'll use some prayer. Father, we are sorry for when we invest too much in our human leaders, we want them to lead us in a way that that is for you to lead us. We repent of our sin and we thank you that in Jesus we have a true, good, powerful King Mm -hmm. who will lead us forever and who will lead us home despite the sin in the world around us, despite the sin within the church.